Welcome to The Field Trip, a podcast about the future of commercial real estate, the future of law, and everything in between. I'm your host, Alistair Fitzgerald. This is the second in a series of episodes focusing on the impact of the pandemic on commercial real estate. Some time is spent on current impacts, of course, but the main focus is to look forward and try to observe or divine what changes will stick or what will come into being on account of this once-in-a-generation impact on the way we live our lives. In this episode, we speak with Jen Williams, Deputy Executive Director for the Property Council in Queensland. This episode was recorded only a few weeks ago, but so much has happened in that time that many of the things we talk about aren't exactly out of date, but are perhaps deferred until we, hopefully, progress beyond the second wave currently being encountered primarily in Victoria, but also in New South Wales and Queensland. Jen brings her A-game in this episode and we cover a lot of ground, but I was really hoping to hear from Jen about the impact on the PCA's business itself, being driven by in-person events, and to talk about what the future might look like there. Jen really delivers. A very enjoyable discussion for me, jam-packed with great insights. I hope you enjoy. Jen Williams, thanks thanks for joining us on the podcast today. You're Deputy Executive Director the Property Council in Queensland. Correct. Um, before we turn the microphone on today, you're giving, sharing some interesting background of yours at how about at how you came to the your current position. Um, could you share that with us? I thought that was really interesting. You want the whole journey, yeah, or would sure. you like well, the abbreviated you know, you can journey? Down, but... Sure. Um, I have worked in many, many different roles and never knew what I what I wanted to be or what I wanted to do. Uh, So finished school, I studied social science, worked in market research in the city in an office and hated every minute of it and decided I never wanted to work in an office again. Uh, So then I went and studied a Bachelor of Education because I thought teachers don't have to be in an office. Mm -hmm. Uh, After that, I taught for about three and a half years, uh, most of that in North Queensland. During that time, I studied um, a Master's of Management as well. Um, so finished up my country service of teaching and decided to move back to Brisbane, newly minted with my master's degree. Mm-hmm. Um, again, didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. So I actually started working for a federal politician, became an advisor in federal politics. Uh, did that until Kevin 07 rocked the boat a bit. Right. Lost my job. Mm-hmm. That was fine. Um, I went to work for a developer for a year and a half after that. Then the GFC hit, so not too much work for developers around that time. Uh, went back to teaching, and then uh, I got a call from Amanda Cooper in Brisbane City Council a couple of years later, and she asked me to come work with her on um, as a planning advisor. Mm-hmm. So I went and did that for a while. Um, I was there for a year, and I met the team at the Property Council, and I absolutely loved them. So after meeting them for a few times, I rang up Kathy McDermott, who was then the Queensland Executive Director, and said, do you have a job? And she's like, I'm pretty sure I can make one for you. So then I started the Property Council as a policy advisor, and I've been there for almost nine years. Wow. And so was it, was it the connection with the people that made you say, I want to work for the Property Council? Absolutely. More so than, because if you go back and you look at the different elements of your sort of different careers before coming to to the property council they all are 
you know, if you look at what you're doing now, quite complementary or quite valuable. Mm. I can't imagine you've left a lot of those learnings behind. No, every everything that I've done has has built on the thing before it, but it's all very much been people based. So uh, every time it's been somebody who I've met has said, "Do you want to come work for me?" Or I've seen somebody met them and thought, "I really like the way you operate. I'd like to work with you," mm-hmm. and approached them. Yep, and just seemed to stick. And it just seemed to stick. And the property council, this is the best job in the world. It is just this perfect blend of all sorts of different things. So it's... So, so, so what, what, what are those things? So I think mm-hmm. there's, um, you know, again, as you know, I've known of the property council for, for quite a long time. And it's like reminded of all the different elements of what it is that they do. Mm-hmm. Like, what, what are those? Unpack that for us. What are those? So in my role, I look after our policy and advocacy work. So day to day, you know, I could have my head stuck in legislation. Like this morning, I lodged a submission on the Environment Protection and Other Legislation Amendment Bill. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's like being a nerd, sitting there, trolling through legislation, dealing with the lawyers. So that satisfies like part of my brain. A joy, no doubt. It is a joy. Very good friends of mine. Um, But then there's other bits of it. So we run... uh, I think we have 14 industry committees in Queensland. So each one of them has about 20 industry reps on there. So they're a cross section of the industry. Mm-hmm. So you get to meet with them every month and chat to them about what they're doing, what we can do for them, which is just amazing. And then as well, we have our events, which is a big part of our focus. And I'm sure we'll come to a bit later we as will. well. And yep. uh, so they range did range from six people up to 1800 people. Mm-hmm. So huge spectrum. And, you know, part of my role is to help come up with the ideas, speakers, topics yep. for those events. And the, um, is it through the committees that things like, um, and I'm sure I'm getting this description wrong, but the, um, you know, the benchmarking for different asset classes like premium, A grade, all that, that, that comes through, that work comes through the committees as it well? It does. Because that, that's also so a that's... question I have a bit later as to... <laughs> Yeah. how this current state of affairs is going to impact on those Yeah, things. so the Property Council, so we're a national organisation. Mm-hmm. So I work in, in Queensland and we predominantly look after state and local-based issues. Mm-hmm. We also have a national division who look after the national issues. Mm-hmm. And part of that is that we have a national research team. And so they work with our members mm-hmm. and they have their own set of committees as such and they come up with like a guide to office building quality um, the office market report and our surveys and bits and pieces yep. like that. So they take carriage of that and then we kind of push it out through our state networks. Excellent. Um, we're the, one of the, or the main reason why I wanted to have a chat with you is um, on account of the pandemic and the impact that that's had on the industry. And whilst not going to pass over what the current state of affairs is, I'm quite interested to look into the crystal ball and see what things might be temporary and what things might be permanent changes mm-hmm. um, to the industry. Um, but perhaps if we can start with the immediate impact. Um, and I guess from, from a couple of levels. So I, I'm interested to know what the, I'm sure you've heard loud and clear what the feedback from the membership is. And I'd be interested to hear what that is and I'll sort of not be too specific about sort of what particular mm-hmm. aspect of it. But, but one thing I, I was interested to understand is given the diversity of the membership in the property council from the biggest organizations down to quite small organizations perhaps 
how that feedback differs across that spectrum. So feedback in terms of the pandemic, well, just, or yeah, just how we connect with them. No, just just in the impact on the business of mm. um, you know of the membership of the property council from the pandemic yeah. itself. So I guess, like you say, our membership ranges. So we have sole operators through to the biggest property companies in the country. Um, some of them uh, are doing quite well mm-hmm. at this point in time. Yep. Others not so well at all. Uh, we have continued to run all of our industry committees, so via Teams. Mm-hmm. Um, we've also run live stream events to help us gather feedback from our members on how they're going yep. and how we can help them. Um, so across the different sectors, they've all been impacted in different ways and some of them will be impacted further down the track as opposed to um, to right now. So obviously people, you know, retail tenants, they're hurting yes. pretty bad mm-hmm. at this point. Um, offices, you look at the CBD. Very quiet. Very quiet. Mm-hmm. When are people returning to the office? Are people returning to the office? Mm-hmm. Are they just going to come and go? Are they going to drive? Are they... So I guess, um, you know, depending on which sector you look at, it's all been very different. Um, we've had uh, like the, the I can't think of it, the home builder, mm-hmm. which has helped our residential members um, and some of our retirement living members are able to access that as well. Mm-hmm. Some of our smaller operators in the comms field, they've never been busier in their lives as right. they're trying to help out some of the other members in, oh, you know, advertising home builder and the like and yep. getting stuff through the door uh, so it's been it's been really an interesting time um, so people have you know called us with urgent issues on the spot so things like you know dealing with the commercial code of conduct mm-hmm. and how to implement that yep. um, and then we've had others say you know can you give us any insights when are people coming back to the office what do I need to do to make my office COVID safe yep. how do I engage with my landlord I'm a landlord. How do I engage with my tenants? And so, is it is it a bit early? Do you think to see, you know, because and I want to talk about the, the code of conduct, but it's really been dealing with that immediate impact of how to sort of, um, and perhaps if I can just sort of selfishly look at you know, the the leasing, mm. um, the the leasing market, uh, looking at what measures can be put in place for sort of temporary relief, whether in accordance with the code of conduct they fell under that. Or otherwise, so has it been more focused on those immediate things and it's still too early to get a sense of how things are going to shake out? I think it's definitely too early to understand how it's going to shake out, but people are very keen to look beyond the health emergency. Mm -hmm. So, you know, early on, people just wanted to connect with one another and find out who was doing what, which, you know, which video conferencing platform was best to use with your teams? Yep. Like, how do I negotiate with, with, with my tenants? Yep. Whereas now they're looking bigger picture and further out and wondering, you know, my books might have been busy up until this month. Mm-hmm. What's coming next? Or, you know, what, what's going to happen to the CBD? So we've been able to write out, you know, going, yes, it'll be three months mm-hmm. or, you know, the government's next stage of lockdown is going to be lifted on the 10th of July. So we can last until then, but will things return to normal then? So the, the questions are starting to come through. Some of our committees, like the Committee for Cities, is really focused on those those big picture long-term impacts, mm-hmm. whereas others are still, you know, there are still those who are still trying to apply for land tax relief and trying to have those conversations with their tenants. Um, but it's 
mostly been in that early emergency stage yep. up until now when we're looking a bit further afield. What about the property council itself as an organisation? Mm. Like how did, what was its path through all those different steps that, you know, that you were just referring to from, from the yeah. members in terms of, you know, even starting back to the, um, you know, oh my God, how do we do this whole virtual thing? How do we do the virtual thing? So we're really fortunate as at the property council. So we have access to some of the most amazing minds and just through our membership, mm -hmm. you know, these organisations are fabulous. And so we get to see how they do everything. And so for a long time, the Property Council has been focused on having flexibility in its workplaces, mm -hmm. so emulating what the employees of choice and the big organisations are doing. So everyone across the Property Council for the past maybe two years has been able to work flexibly. Mm -hmm. Everybody's had their own laptop, they've had their own wireless dongle, they can work from anywhere. Mm -hmm. So when this all came out, we were actually in a pretty good position because we already had in place all of those tools that a lot of organisations didn't have. Mm -hmm. Um, Were you using them a lot? Because I, I asked question. that question because um, it's like field is a distributed team, mm. um, and so there's one. And so our our only method of operation has been people working in different yeah. places and working remotely as a team, and also in connecting with our clients. And that's been a very big learning experience that we've gone through over many years to make that work really well. Yeah. Um, and so one thing I've observed um, from talking with some of our own customers is it's one thing to have the technology there. Yeah. It's a wholly different situation when you're forced to use it all day, every day. Mm. Um, had you had some practice with that or were you in the same <laughs> boat? Yeah, I think we were very much in the same boat. So we, particularly our policy team, because we're a membership organisation, we're out all day with our members and we're meeting with government and we're meeting with industry and councils. And so for any one of us to work from home, you know, you'd have to book it out three weeks in advance this day, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. this day, do not put stuff in cause I'm going to work from home. Yep. Uh, so everything we did really was face to face. Yes. And so now, but are you still working? Like, are you working on everything else, but for the thing you're immediately dealing with on a remote basis, or it's not quite the same? It's, it's just not quite the same. Cause you're sort but of jumping from one thing to the next. There's not really sort yeah. of downtime where you're sitting, busting out a laptop in some yeah. strange location, catching up on some work. No, it doesn't, it doesn't really okay. work like that. So we, what we ended up doing is realizing, you know, well, so government stopped inviting us to a lot of meetings, which was nice for a yes. while. And then they suddenly replaced them all with, you know, Virtual recovery meetings. meetings. Yes. Yeah. That's okay. But, you know, we still have less meetings now than what we did yep. pre-COVID. So that's actually allowed us the time to connect better as a team virtually, which mm -hmm. we never had to do pre-COVID. Yep. And so using Teams and such like so we call each other quite often and yep. team catch-ups and things so, so let me just ask you one thing there because I've, mm. I've got a bit of a like a theory of my own going as to the impact of this whole um, situation on meetings and meeting culture yeah um, where uh, it's one thing to be you know and a lot of people spend a lot of time in meetings some good meetings some uh, more productive meetings perhaps some some not so um, but then w what I saw is that people would who were tasked with that kind of role then took that and tried to transpose it into a virtual environment and just had this burnout fatigue from yeah. zoom meetings or whatever the platform is all day all long day. and all of a sudden they're stopping going this is too many meetings this is ridiculous so one of my thoughts is that 
This will make people reflect with greater scrutiny on the value of meetings yep. and, and who needs to go to them. And, and so I think they'll reduce. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that'll be a longer lasting effect. I think there'll be more. And what, what is inherent in successful distributed um, workforces, and a lot of this kind of feedback comes, you know, software development is a, an area that tends to do this um, with sort of more in a more proactive way and that there's more autonomous um, sort of parallel work running and less you know work, working together yeah. all the time so I can see some of that coming through but then that has a really interesting flow-on effect in so many areas if people are just meeting less whether it be from the way the organization might work mm. and people work together or indeed how offices are laid out how many meeting rooms you've got even yeah. it, like i think it could be the, the cascading effect from that could be quite significant and and perhaps not appreciated so that's that's one yeah. thing that, that's one of my sort of crystal ball things at the moment yeah it is absolutely and it's a conversation that we have often mm-hmm. often what we have found just within the property council is it's really hard to do anything creative mm-hmm. over a virtual network. Yes. So when our team got together for the first time, we were back in the office um, last week, got in the office, you know, all spaced out. <laughs> meter and a half all standing away. on your circle on the yeah, ground. pretty yeah. much. But we could actually have a proper conversation yeah. and brainstorm different responses to things and build mm. off one another, which is something that you just cannot do in a virtual environment. Mm. And so I think returning to work so we knew that we were missing that but actually being back in the office together it just really brought home how important it is to be able to be face to face with your staff yeah i think um i think that's absolutely right i Mm. I would sort of take that a step further and go often where i think it's easy for for that to spill over into everything being a discussion by meeting and so perhaps again being more mindful about saying we get enormous value out of doing this in person we need to maintain that because um because that's really important but then we don't need to have this additional time like we don't need to then go and do the thing or you know in a meeting context you know there's a lot more work that can be done Externally, so I, I just think people are going to be looking with, with much more scrutiny there. Because I think it's it goes both ways for me. Because during lockdown, I found that the meetings that I would set up got forwarded more often. Yes, and so you had more people just sitting as passive observers. Yes, I think that will meetings. stop too. Um, and I think that's because it becomes so much more obvious. Um, I don't know what it is. The, the, the virtual interface and meeting with people. I think it's just harder to sit whether you're an active or a passive participant in a meeting. It's just much harder work doing it in a virtual environment. And I, I was mm-hmm. listening to um, some people talking about this and just saying that the like the mental drain is is greater because there's, you know, I think they were saying perhaps it's it's they can't, you can't look away. You can't there's no way of cheating the engagement there. It's quite You don't know if you're it's on quite, somebody's full it's screen. Quite, it's quite obvious if um, if you're uh, if you're not really participating fully. Yeah. So I also find it really hard not getting immediate feedback from Mm. somebody's face. So I find it, for example, really difficult to have phone calls with people because I can't sense from looking at their face. Mm -hmm. And even just the delay of the the screen or not quite being able to see somebody's face, I actually find it really quite difficult to have a a genuine conversation with a person. I think the technology is going to come in leaps and bounds in that area so if you i mean if you just look like 
how good is the average web, webcam as mm-hmm. a camera, as a microphone? I, I think you'll see in the next 12 months, the say, new laptops coming out, everyone is going to be talking about how fantastic their new camera is mm-hmm. and how fantastic the audio is. And they might sound like really unimportant things, but the difference between that and better quality stuff is quite significant. So I think a lot of... Um, the, the, there'll be a great democratization of technology that goes to audio and video mm. and I think that's a really I think it's quite an interesting area and and, and mm. another another tip in that respect um, the gaming industry like a lot of people stream gameplay a lot of people follow mm. people um, and it's yeah. not like I wouldn't for a second suggest I know anything about computer games my nine-year-old thrashes me in anything he chooses to play but there is um, an amazing following and it's not just sitting there and saying I'm watching somebody else play a game like I'm, I'm watching someone play you know rugby or cricket or, or whatever and I'm marveling at their skill it's not just that it's the conversation that goes on um, yeah. at the same time and it's more that social element so there's a whole this this enormous industry of people being able to do amazing things and connect in an online environment that sort of sits in this an area that a lot of people wouldn't see and i think a lot of that's going to become more mainstream like a lot of that tech and that process is going to come through with younger generation and change quite a lot of things so younger generation well no i i think it's easy to look it's it's easy you know as an old person like me to look at things and say and and put your overlay on Mm -hmm. how things work like when people say you know oh yeah, you know, when someone forty plus says, um, "Oh, I think people are going to want to do this when they come. Oh, they really need that in-person connection. Yeah. They're going to want to come back to the office." Or some people will say, "No one's ever going to want to come back to the office because of whatever." I think anyone making categoric statements like that without asking yeah. the generation of people that are really going to be making those decisions that are coming through now a generation that deals with technology in an entirely different way mm. to all of us. I think that's a bit flawed. So again, I, I look at that as a really interesting space. Sorry, I digress, yeah. but I, I no, think that's, that's right. quite fascinating. The same, like the generational thing's interesting. You know, big organisations like the PwCs and EYs and that of the world, mm. you know, they surveyed their many thousands of staff about yes. who wanted to come back into the office and who didn't yep. and their reasons for it. And, you know, the younger people were the ones who were keen to come back in. Yes. And the older generation keen to stay home mm. and then in the middle was like yeah but i think it's easy to look like i don't think enough thought or perhaps not the right questions are being asked of those younger people mm. because and i'm guessing here but the people asking the questions are people not from that generation and so you know how you ask the question says a lot about the information mm. you necessarily get back and they're all so when you don't have an appreciation for example of how people in a younger cohort interact yeah. with each other socially via technology yeah what the alternatives are you're giving so them like you're, you're asking them in, 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 in my in my world this is what it looks like here mm. give me a question I'll answer a b or c yeah and they're like then, what about e and f yeah exactly exactly so yeah. fascinating space anyway i'll i'll park <laughs> that one that's just an area that i'm quite interested um quite interested in um the so sorry. do you mean to continue so we um so the property council, so we all got sent home. Yes. Um, and now we're making that transition of back to the office, yes. which has been interesting as yes. well. So talk to me about that because when I spoke to you about having, doing this podcast, you 
put the hand out and said, no, 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 you can't come into we're our office. We're not allowed so, visitors. Yep. And now, no, is that, not. and this perhaps is just speaking to my naivety, but is that a rule external to you guys that you can't have people in or is that a decision that you've made? Because I have visited some offices recently. Right. So that's a decision of our yep. ex-go. Yes. That, you know, we are going to do things in the safest possible mm-hmm way basically um and like i said we're a national organization every office is transitioning back in a different way Mm -hmm. so in queensland we've been back for two weeks now um so we've got an a and a b team so one team in there monday tuesday every second wednesday the others thursday friday the other wednesday we're not allowed any visitors you know we've got all the standard cleaning protocols you name it Mm -hmm. but public transport, I believe, still remains the biggest barrier to return to the office. Yep. Mm. People just not willing to... People don't want to go on public transport. No. So I think after the school holidays and here in Queensland, more people returning to the office, it's going to be a nightmare. Hmm. Certainly seen no shortage of people returning back to shopping centres recently. Yeah. Um, I think in shopping centres you can choose your distance from, you know, you yeah, can move away from them, whereas yeah, on public yeah. transport... Yeah, you yeah, know, it, it certainly is different. And we're innately polite people, you know, someone sits next to you, you're not going to yeah. ask them to move. You wouldn't? Or maybe not. Yeah, I, I've noticed, and, and even in myself, where I was very hesitant early on, where I just didn't understand the things, you know, where, you know, taking our kids anywhere or um, certainly engaging with anyone else, grandparents, other things. You know, we're yeah. all by the book there. And then I felt in myself a great sort of release recently in sort of going back into public places. Mm-hmm. And I can sense that in others around it. It, it seems because, you know, there was um, a mantra about doing the right things so that we can sort of manage um you know, manage the extent to which this became a problem to help the healthcare system, yeah. like you know, flatten the curve and all, all that kind of stuff. That all made sense. I think we got through and people have thought, oh, we've managed this quite well, whether that be by luck or by design. Mm. I'm not one to judge that. Um, but we seem to get through it quite well. And so people go, oh, that's cool. And now they're relaxed yeah. or much more so. Um, public transport's an interesting one there, though. It's... Yeah. And, it, you know, Victoria... In the past couple of days, I've seen those massive spikes. It'll be interesting to see the impact of that on the psyche of people in Queensland. If it mm. does, if they do start to, you know, revert back to, you know, the lockdown way of thinking, mm-hmm. or if they are just going to embrace their freedom. Yeah, that's a hard one, I think, because mm. I think people's willingness to go back into full yeah. lockdown mode is probably not great. Um, mandatory code of conduct. Yes. Subtle. Shift there. Did you like that? Um, the uh, from the outside looking in, I could see commentary that the PCA gave in mm. response to that. Were you, um, to, or, or to what extent was the PCA involved in the creation of that, as opposed yeah. to giving feedback on it? Like, how did that process work? Sure. So it started with national cabinet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the the PM said. Basically, to you know, the treasurers, I want to have some principles, um, and so the property council was heavily involved at that point in right. dealing with all of the different states mm-hmm. and providing our input. And um, kudos to Queensland government; they listened to us and actually took the fight up to national cabinet and put forward what we thought was some really fair 
principles. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, that got rolled at the last minute, yeah. and we ended up with a set of principles which were not uh, not as equitable as we would have liked. They mm-hmm. were very much in favour of the tenants. Um, we did manage to work with them to wind back one of the really scary ones, which would have allowed tenants to walk away en masse. Yep. Like that would have just been devastating yep. for the the entire economy. And were they were they? Do you think they were intentional things, or do you think they were perhaps just not fully understanding? I think that that was not an intentional one. I yep. think that they were you know trying to support the tenants, but didn't quite realise the ramifications of just allowing people to just tear up their leases and head for the doors. Yep. Uh, so we did get that one one back, which was yep. great. So we ended up with a list of principles then, which the states were left to implement and similarly with land tax relief so the treasurers had kind of agreed on you know some principles um but then they didn't get kind of enforced across the board so each state then had to go and work it out Mm -hmm. queensland was a first mover and they did a fabulous job on the land tax relief Mm -hmm. in getting it out really quickly and they've just extended the time frames for it as well after we put our case to them Um, But then Queensland was actually one of the last states to implement its code of conduct. So they kind of sat back, they worked with us and sat back and looked at what all of the other states were doing and Mm -hmm. picked out bits and pieces from them. And we had really close engagement with them. So, you know, probably seven or eight rounds of feedback Mm -hmm. on, on the regulations before they actually adopted it. And it's probably the fairest regulation in the country. Mm which is very pleasing. So which, which aspects of, so what, what are the, you know, the handful of key items that you, the PCA was advocating for one position and a different position? Sure. Uh, so the original, so the, um, the National Cabinet principles, you know, they had in there about the extent of relief that needed to be provided mm-hmm. um, and the amount of land tax that had to be passed on. Um, and so some of those we've been able to kind of um, make them more at the discretion of the landlord and tenant so that they can actually negotiate an outcome. You know, some tenants don't want to be locked into something that's for the next six months. They might only want, you know, three months and then they'll be back on their feet and Mm -hmm. not have to worry about deferred rent. Yes. Um, so because that's a sleeper that one. It is. Mm. And so some of them recognize that and, you know, they will, the tenants and landlords were able to work together because there weren't the hard and fast box-ticking rules yes. that some of the other states kind yes. of had. Mm-hmm. But on the whole, do you think, like, it's, again, from the outside looking in, and we, you know, we, we work almost exclusively mm-hmm. for, for landlords or people that work for landlords, so yeah. um, we see their points of view, um, or we hear their points of view on that. Um, from my perspective looking at it, considering the amount of time and how much was unknown in the mm. impact of these things, it seems to be relatively balanced. I yeah. mean, never perfect. Are there any... It's never perfect. Yeah. But I think, you know, you hit the nail on the head there when you said the amount of time, you know, this is an emergency mm. and people needed relief yep. straight away. And some of the landlords, as you would appreciate, they have thousands of tenants yes. that they have to deal with one-on-one to understand mm. their individual issues and to come up with a bespoke agreement mm. for them and um, but it's, it's a proportionality in that in that is. arrangement as well because you know big organizations have lots of people to manage that and i'm not yeah. being flippant about that but um you know for a small owner with one building and half a dozen tenants yeah. to work through perhaps 
no, no different challenge in, in yeah or, or perhaps a greater challenge depends how and with you know some of the bigger ones as well they've got different um different codes in different states yes. and different requirements yep. and you know they're dealing with the same kind of well you know it's meant to be for smes mm. but um trying to make things consistent across their business so they're mm. not favoring one over another yep. you know it was no small task and some of them they're still in negotiations now yeah yeah um yes yeah it's i mean as with all of these things the the ch- and any kind of you know all the financial stimulus measures it's you know you're kicking the can down the road to a certain extent yeah. perhaps to a large extent and how things unravel when some of those support mechanisms yeah. fall away will be um, the bigger determinant of how much of an impact the yeah. pandemic is. And I will perhaps. say, you know, the, the property industry, the only ones who've had to put their hands in their own pocket to support another sector mm. of the business community as yeah. well. Well, it's a question of... Um, I mean, they want them to succeed, obviously. Yeah, I mean, there's a... I had thought quite a bit about that before the pandemic in the context of retail and mm. the challenge that bricks and mortar retail has as yeah. a sector and uh, and particularly the impact of e-commerce on bricks and mortar retail even though you know a lot of well, all bricks and mortar retailers these days are involved in e-commerce but there is you know I looked at it as, a, as an evolution if you're going to be cynical and say there's you know um, an acrimonious landlord tenant like landlord mm. v tenant kind of dynamic um, which certainly exists in some places that it's almost now a collective or um, united against a common foe so instead of yeah. bricks and mortar landlords going against bricks and mortar tenants it's a question of saying well we've got this phenomenon of e-commerce it's impacting on both of us and perhaps now for our collective good we need to change the way in which we deal with each other so that we can best manage the impact of um you know of this other threat and so there's a certain sense of that for me in the pandemic where you can look at it and saying one sector is is supporting another sector but i'm sure no major landlord is going to want to have major defaults across no, there absolutely um, not it's in their interest yeah. to to keep all of their tenants in place mm. for sure yeah so um, the next six months six or twelve months will be, will be quite, quite interesting um i mentioned earlier the um the uh, the classification system for buildings mm-hmm. that the PCA administers, um, and I'm reading a lot of really interesting stuff that's coming out at the moment about how the major office landlords, in particular, are dealing with or are using various measures to make their buildings more able to receive people. So mm-hmm. um, you know, contactless entry and management of lift capacity and yeah. you know even before we get to office layout and 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 all of these other things is there talk yet about how any of those things might start to flow into these tools or is that a bit early am i jumping I think the gun it's a bit there? early on that one so we just last year published the new guide to office quality mm-hmm. um office building quality which is as you know the standard used across the country and that was that was a, a big process mm-hmm. to work with the the landlords and their people to figure out you know where we think like predicting where buildings are going to go yep. you know technology changes so much and so we've finally got that one out mm-hmm. so i think it will it will take time to to work through 
what is best practice mm-hmm. in terms of you know social distancing and bringing these things in as particularly as permanent features because that's what we're talking about permanent features of the building as mm-hmm. opposed to just you know your hand sanitizer stations yep. or or whatever else so i think it will take time for people to figure out what they want and what the gold standard is before mm. that then flows through to outrating tools are you getting the sense that a landlords putting their foot down on more permanent changes now or do you think there's still some hesitation about you know do we want to go and invest all of this capex on these um you know these new measures yeah. that maybe in a few years we look back and go we didn't like we're not we're no longer getting value for those things i'd say you know there are there are a few commercial towers under construction in the cbd at the moment and they are looking very very closely at what permanent things that they need to put in place mm. and so whether they do go over and above just to make sure yep well it's, it's much more know. cost effective to do it to before it right you build the thing yeah yeah mm. so then there are those who've just finished buildings who may be going you know how yeah. can we retrofit what can we what can we kind of do but you know it takes a long time to get a commercial tower out of the ground mm-hmm. so you know they're not changes that people can very quickly no just make if they're permanent yeah but i i, I do wonder you know because all the they'll all have their, their capex budget so i mm. wonder whether whether they're saying we just need to allocate you know if whatever percentage was the amount of capex that we'd spend on our portfolio over the next three years we're going to start to assume that we double that number mm. um because we we see that we're to keep at the you know to keep ahead of the curve to keep at the sort of the competitive edge that we're going yeah. to need to do a lot of things we perhaps don't know exactly what those things are going to be yet but we need yeah. to do them um, i imagine it. those conversations are definitely happening yeah. in-house and as you'd appreciate the property industry is very competitive mm. and there is that flight to quality and yep. so there's that constant trying to get the newest latest greatest to attract the most tenants mm. the best tenants absolutely mm. no I, th- I think that um you know i can just imagine things you know as someone who's you know spent a career negotiating leases and you know reflecting on times like for example when you know the you know, the green star rating and the, and the, the different right neighbors the tools and... have come in but then looking at things like wellness mm. um definitely seeing environment a greater quality, focus on wellness cleaning standards yeah. you know all of a sudden you the negotiations are going to be going much deeper into areas that they haven't Mm. seen so much of before um and you know experiencing those other examples i gave is that there's seem they push the boat out quite a long way and then sort of as people get a better understanding of how things will shake out they they become simpler in their um not necessarily less stringent but simpler in their um in their framework but interesting for sure i was i suppose as as a final element of our discussion as as i mentioned earlier i'm keen to understand and, and, and you mentioned the um, the property council. A big part of its business is running events. Yeah. And I think it's a great it's a great insight into the broader challenge of the industry in across a lot of different areas in dealing with this issue of lots of people close together is a problem. Certainly a problem now. To mm. what extent it's going to remain a problem, time will tell. How has that impacted the property council in its events business? And perhaps that that transition you spoke of the transition with the office before what happened mm. immediately and then like talk to us a bit about that yeah. and where you see it going so this it has been i'm not gonna lie it's been really hard mm-hmm. for us um so a huge proportion of our revenue comes in through events 
So events basically pay to keep people like me employed to run our advocacy. Mm -hmm. Um, In Queensland, we run circa 60 events a year. And that's just in Queensland. Mm-hmm. So you multiply that around the country and then our national events. Mm. So it's it's a huge business. Yeah. And that's not 60 lunches. That's a, like a range of that's things. That's a range yeah. of things, yeah. It could be a professional development course. Our Christmas party has 1,800 people come to it. So I remember. Good fun. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that's a, that's a big part of our business. And mm. we have people employed specifically to roll out those events. So we went from running that many events to zero in the space of two weeks Mm -hmm. basically uh so huge flow on implications and what were like were you involved at all in the discussions around that or at least privy to it because to be honest i've just come back from maternity leave so i wasn't (laughs) i wasn't really around for but but did you did you get some sense um sorry and of course i knew that (laughs) (laughs) but uh, i i'm I imagine that must have been a very difficult period when, again, there was so much uncertainty yeah. around it, such a significant part of the business. These are really hard decisions really to make. Hard. Are we overreacting? Are we doing the right thing um, when they're sort of serious existential threats for the business? Yeah. From your colleagues, have you heard much about that? That perhaps a week period where it. The decisions um, were kind of made real. made for us in yeah. terms of. Our members, their businesses just said, no, no. Okay. So for example, we ran um, a lunch on the Gold Coast on the Thursday and then the following week we were all at home working from home. Right. So our members had basically said, I'm sorry, yep. we're not allowed to go to events anymore. Mm-hmm. So that made the decision for us. Yep. Uh, so we went very rapidly back to zero mm-hmm. events. Um, to help kind of fill the gap and to connect with our members because property industry, we all love to chat to one another, mm-hmm. as you'd appreciate. Um, we started running national live stream events. So every two weeks, we'd have some of the CEOs of the big corporate leaders talking yep. for an hour, which was really great for the first couple months. Mm-hmm. And then everybody got, got fatigue. Yep. Yeah. And that's fine. You know, completely understand that. Consequently, though, it did mean that we had to fundamentally change our business. So we're now running an interim operating model. So all of our event staff from these different states and nationally have been reallocated to different parts of the business or they've been stood down, Mm -hmm. which is an incredibly hard decision to make. Um, So rather than having state-based events team, we had one online events team. And then we had innovation, sponsorship, and marketing. And then the third one, there's another one that's running as well, that our commercial team, yep. they were allocated to that, the remaining staff. Membership renewal, yep. of course. Mm. So that was a really key one for us. All of our membership renewal notices have gone out in the middle of a pandemic, which, again, yes. not ideal. Um, so the business has been running under that model um, with a deadline basically of September to reevaluate where we're at mm-hmm. in really positive news because we've done so well in terms of, you know, keeping the cases low. We actually are running our first face-to-face event in Queensland on the 13th of August, awesome. which is the office market report. So that's very exciting. Mm-hmm. So that means we can unpick one of our staff from the national online events team to come back and help us to run that here 
going and forward. And how, okay, I can't just ask yeah. So how, how big will that be? Do you, like what yeah. restrictions will be in place? For so that our event? events are not going to look like they used to look. Yeah. I think that's across the board. You know, our members, they don't have the money to have big ticket prices. People are reluctant to sit at a table of 10 in a hotel. Um, there's just a range of things that are different. So we're looking at new ways of doing everything. Mm -hmm. So this one, for example, is going to be uh, in the afternoon. It's going to be a two-hour session, and it's going to be in a bigger space, and it's going to be a stand-up event. So you're not going to you know, be sitting down sharing croissants at breakfast. There's going to be the space to move, and numbers are going to be capped quite low mm -hmm. as well. So every event that we do going forward, we're going to have to think through that event and figure a bespoke way of running it yep. so different venues more outdoor spaces more stand-up events room for people to move rather than being all crushed up against each other which yep. they typically enjoy yeah so it, i mean it's it's been very hard for us and it will take a really long time until we are back to if we ever do Standard get back to procedure. running 60 events yep. a year um but we are what's your feel on that running so many events yeah i, I mean or... like to what extent do you think and i know none of us are really qualified to understand it but like you'll be closer to the significance of that with you know these business decisions so like, you, what do you what do you think do you think we will ever get back to that yeah or... i think it will take a very long time mm. to do the the demand is there but people they ring me all day every day saying you know when when are we going to do this event? When are we going to do that event? I've got this great idea. Can we do something on this? I want mm -hmm. to connect with these people. It's all about those connections. Mm -hmm. And so they really want to get back at it. Mm. Um, but whether through physical restrictions, financial restrictions, I think it's just going to take a long time to get back to there. Mm. And it will probably never look the same mm. as what it did. No, I think that's... And we pride, you know, the property council has always prided itself on having, you know, a very schmick, professional look for its events. Yeah. You know, the best AV and yeah. best events, best speakers, best events, yeah, best events. And so now we'll have to be satisfied with a bit less of all that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I um, again, without any expertise to make these judgment, you know, to, to make these sort of observations, but I. I can't imagine that sta like physically staggered events will be something that will remain because mm. I just don't think it's delivering the same yeah. value to the person that's going, whether that be yeah. going to see sporting matches or concerts or going to industry events or mm. all those sorts of things. So I um, either will get through it and forget about it and, you know, through vaccines or whatever other means we'll feel more comfortable and we'll get back there or perhaps and or um, there'll be increased sophistication in sort of technological things that can help us be safer in close proximity and and i think that bit is mm. going to look quite different so you go back 12 months and say in five years time everyone's going to be wearing i don't know some kind of transparent mask that looks mm like whatever like you probably see in various social media feeds and you go that looks crazy i'd never do that but well if it's a decision of wearing that and having the confidence to go back to doing what we used to do yeah. or not being able to do them at all um then i think we'll probably do that so uh, again you know i mentioned that um you know i think laptops are going to start 
you know, your, your new MacBook's going to have the best webcam and best microphone because people will be using that much yeah. more. I think these, I think there'll be enormous money being funneled into the advancement of these personal items, mm-hmm. you know, masks, whatever that do yeah. those things more effectively. And I, and I think that will, because I just can't imagine we're all going to be happy doing things that don't look something like we did before. Yeah, that's my. That's my hope. Yeah, I think we've got to try and make them not feel too clinical mm. as well. So, yeah, you know, but, but I think there'll have... be some concessions in that and, and the, the social stigma associated with doing those things. Like mm. if you go to Asia, everyone wears and, yeah. and has worn masks yeah, for a long, for long time. time. If they're sick, they put a mask on. It's just no one bats an eyelid. But if anyone did that here, they'd be looked at oddly. So that breaking down those kinds of social yeah. stereotypes or, or reservations, I think, might happen more quickly. It's like, well... If I've got to get over that, but then I can still go and yeah, watch whatever a sporting event or whatever, then I think I'll just choose to do that and get over it. And everyone will probably get over it. Yeah. That's my hope. Or we'll just find a vaccine and we can... Yeah, but... I, I don't know. I think there's got to be some residual concern about yeah. these things happening again. And, and whilst there, there can be some sympathy if you're sort of looking at sort of governments around the world generally to say, well... You know, yes, they could and should have seen this coming, but really could anyone, until it really happens and it impacts you, it's often hard to make the investment you need mm. to make that kind of change. I think there's very little excuse now going forward for us just to be asleep at the wheel on an ongoing basis. I don't know, again, that's my hope. I hope we're not. Um, what about, uh, so you're talking about your events mm. in a physical context and you spoke about having, you know, these virtual yeah. seminars with you know, um, sort of important people in the profession that people want to hear from. Um, you guys have a podcast series. We as do. Well. That's something we spoke about many years ago from memory. Yeah. Um, but what other, it, I get the sense it needs to be more than that, not yeah. just for a business like the Property Council, but for any anyone, any business that used to rely on that kind of social interaction of, of sorts. Are you, are you guys cooking up any ideas or are you seeing some really interesting things about how you can not only stage um, virtual events of whatever mm. form but also monetize those for, you know? Like, yeah, to be honest, we in Queensland are pretty keen to shift away from virtual events yep. because that's not the reason people attend our events. You mm-hmm. know, early on it was a health emergency. Yep. People wanted to find out, like, you know, what was going on. But if you look at the, the main reasons that people attend our events, it is to build their networks, business opportunities, mm. thought leadership. A lot of that can't, it just doesn't work well mm. uh, on virtual platforms. Yeah. So we're basically, as soon as possible, shifting completely from virtual. Yep. We'll still use it for things like our committee meetings because we can't, sit 20 people in a boardroom at the moment. Yep. But in terms of um, monetized events, our focus is back on the physical as soon as possible. Yep. And it is on the what next, because that is everyone's question is the practical what next. So the landlords are saying, are people going to return to my building? Mm-hmm. Is it going to be, you know, A and B team, in which case they still need the amount of floor space they've already taken? So that's cool. Mm. Uh, is it going to be, you know, people completely working from home? Are they going to be hubs popping up in the suburbs where people prefer to work? What does this... Yes to that, I think. What does this mm. look like mm. going forward? Public transport, active transport, 
you know, these are the questions that they're all talking about now mm. and the things that we're keen to talk about as well. But also, you know, as I mentioned earlier, people's books were full. They're not so full going forward. So yeah. what are the actual here and now opportunities mm. for work? So what are the big projects that are still going to continue on? Yeah. Is government stimulus going to continue? What's it going to look like? Where is it going to land? How can people gear themselves up? So that's kind of where our events will focus face-to-face. -face. Interesting. Um, just one thing that you mentioned your city's um, committee, committee mm. before it strikes me that you know whilst that's been a, a growing area of significance in the industry generally that that will really be having its sort of watershed moment <laughs> through, i mean you just mentioned a couple of the things there but yeah. it does go beyond you know the, the micro questions about how people interact with a particular building to much more macro questions Absolutely. about um, transport and planning and um, you know different yeah. locations different Open methods of work space, yep. people's changing priorities mm -hmm. And people have decided, not everyone, but a lot of people have decided that they can and want to stay within their suburbs. They don't have to go into the city. So we want them to, mm -hmm. but they don't have to mm. anymore. So what does that then look like for your city going forward? Like you said, planning implications, transport. Our members own all the CBD assets. What yes. does that mean for them? Mm. Yeah, you know, I think an interesting space is, you know, because shopping centres are a natural suburban hub. Mm -hmm. um, transport is built around them, density is built around them, facilities yeah. are built in and around them. Uh, and, you know, some retail assets have had office built adjoining, above yeah. or whatever. It's never really been a massive yeah. thing in the suburbs. I do, I do wonder whether that comes back on the agenda. Be yeah, I mean, for a long time... Council was keen to have residential above some of these big suburban shopping centres. Mm -hmm. The same as what I have in lots of places overseas and there was never the market for it. Mm. Like you say, does that, does that change now? Yeah. One thought I had in that respect, um, because you know, when you look at retail, I think cinemas are a really interesting sort of subcategory mm. within retail. Like that, without the pandemic, that was an industry in serious decline for a lot yeah. of reasons. And this is really making life an awful lot harder and the location and and extent of those spaces Huge. within shopping space. So not just big, but they're also isolated mm. typically. And you wonder about those as, um, you know, is that, are they opportunities for co-working kind of spaces to be, is that an in and out? Like a, yeah. as one goes down, one comes up, I think. Yeah, one something of these will, crazy thoughts that ended my Something mind. will come up. I think so. I think Jen, so. this has I been fun. Step. Thank you. Um, I. As you would know, being an avid listener of the podcast, I do ask one question at the end about um, what is your current obsession, which is you know, what thing outside of work and family, and there may be nothing, you're a busy woman, <laughs> what thing out of, outside of work and family would people not know about you? What kind of thing mm. really captures your interest, takes your fancy, could be something very small, could be something very big? Uh, I think people would know it if they know me. Um, I live on acreage mm -hmm. and I absolutely love being outside and in my garden and with nature. I love birds, we have lots and lots of birds. Any spare minute I have is getting my hands dirty out in the yard. Awesome, yeah. Jen, thank you. It's been Thanks, fun. Alistair. That was Jen Williams, Deputy Executive Director for the Property Council in Queensland. And I am Alistair Fitzgerald, the CEO of Field. 
We don't talk much about us on this podcast. If you do want to learn more about what we do, we are the leading solution in the Australian market for lease portfolio due diligence. If you're buying or selling commercial real estate assets, turn your leases into action with Field. Find out more at fieldql.com. Thanks again for listening. Catch you on the next episode.